Coming up on this week's show, a classic arcade gets an online mode after 25 years. A Christmas tree for your Amiga. And we chat about developing on the Atari Jaguar and why Lisp should be your next programming language. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every single Friday with our incredible friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you're thinking about Christmas presents for yourself, have you seen the unofficial SNES Pixel Book? Now, this is an incredible 270-page exploration of the biggest and best games, covering all genres of the Super Nintendo with all your favourite 16-bit titles in there. So have a look at that and the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our lovely friends at PCBWay. Now, of course, you know about PCBWay. They offer a fully featured custom PCB prototyping service, low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they do services like 3D printing and injection moulding. And, of course, you know that PCBWay are massive supporters of the retro community. So get an instant quote right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 406, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the show. Of course, a podcast that every single Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the classic age of video games. We bring up to speed on all the big happenings, all the news stories that have been making the headlines in the world of retro from over the last week. And of course, we bring you a veteran of the industry to share their story in the second half of the show. And I can't believe that this is our first show of December. Don't know about you guys, but I'm currently looking out my window across my frosty drive think we had a bit of snowfall overnight my uh this is so cute my daughter yesterday we took her for a walk in it and she was going jack frost has given me a kiss i was like <laughs> i was messing around like i'll mess him up kissing my daughter <laughs> but it was very cute <laughs> well i don't know as well you're, you're getting the christmas decks up aren't you this week joe is that you yeah they this went afternoon up- yeah, they went up yesterday morning. Oh, the Christmas up. decks. Yeah, they're already up. They are been up. You know what? It's 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 every woman's dream. I say every woman's dream, but you know, wives they love it. Like, yeah, let's get the Christmas decks. But the poor blokes, they got to go up into the attic, get the ladders out, go up there, get covered in dust, bring it down. <laughs> like well, we, we keep, dread it. We keep ours in the shed, so I've got to go in there and basically, you know, all the crap that we've piled on top of them over the last twelve months. I've got yeah. to go right at the back and dig them yeah. out this afternoon. So battle any spiders as well. Uh, <laughs> frozen spiders, hopefully, in this weather. <laughs> but of course, it is that time of year now. Won't be long until he's here. You're excited, Joe? Oh yeah. <laughs> well, of course, this does mean now that we are into December, we have only got a couple of normal episodes left of this podcast, or you know, as normal as this show ever is. Uh, we've got a guest next week, and then we're into our Christmas specials already. It's going to be the best of 2023 looking back on the year and of course we're getting ready to record this year's annual christmas super quiz as well i know ravi's been uh, feverishly working on the questions over the last week or so yeah i've got some uh, good ones in there i think um i've got some stingers as well so it's <laughs> gonna, it's going to be interesting to see my approach to questions um compared to your guys i don't think i've got any of those um how many buttons on a controller one? So, you know, uh, <laughs> don't God. get used to your usual uh, uh, questions there. Yeah, so I mean, we always look forward to the Christmas quiz that's coming up in a couple of weeks' time as well. Swapping up the format a bit this year, Ravi's going to be quiz master, and we've got uh, three teams of two people as well are going to be uh, battling it out. Me and Joe are going to be rivals this year on the quiz for the first time. So looking forward to it, Joe. Bring it on. 
Bring it on. So before that, though, of course, we have got uh, another incredible show to get through today and an amazing guest as well. Now, of course, uh, I don't know if you guys have uh, booked any time off over Christmas. I've actually got a week off between Christmas and New Year, which is quite rare for me. But I'm looking forward to uh, doing a lot of retro gaming over that week. And actually, I guess this week has uh, inspired me to maybe get through some of my classic Atari Jaguar games that I haven't played for a while, because we're going to be talking to Conrad Barsky. Now, he did. um, It's a bit of a niche game, but it is one of my uh, favourite puzzle games on the Atari Jaguar, a game called Flip Out. You'll hear the story about how he, uh, he, he had a really interesting career. He started developing for cable services, and uh, he tells a story about how this, uh, there's kind of a trial in the early 90s where they sent a load of silicon graphics workstations out to um, all these customers in a certain town that he was working in. And he had the job of basically connecting them up to be interactive services. And uh, he was kind of the first guy that put a pizza button on a remote control. So if you wanted to order a pizza on your TV, you press a pizza button on your remote control, and then you know like in- um, Bring that back. It, well, yeah, exactly, yeah. How incredible does that sound? A bit like on, um, you know, Sandra Bullock, the net, that film. Which yeah, or kind of like the red button on uh, BBC, but for pizza. Yeah, which, uh, you know, that just sounds incredible. That is something that needs to come back. So he was developing for that, and then we hear the story about how he kind of uh, moved into games programming and ended up working on a couple of titles for the Atari Jaguar, one of which is this uh, really... It's quite a quirky little puzzle game called Flip Out that was actually inspired by his love of juggling and it turns out his love of aliens as well. We'll hear more about that in a bit. Yeah, and it's kind of got the uh, pre-rendered graphics in there as well and it's using a bit more of the uh, Jag's power so we go into kind of details of programming on the Jag. Yeah, doing like, you know, 3D rendering and ray tracing and that kind of thing. And then he was working on a game that got cancelled for the Jaguar CD called Dante's Inferno. So we hear about that in a bit too. And also he's a massive fan of a uh, a classic programming language that he's really trying to bring back, isn't he, Ravi? Yeah, so he's um, uh, a fan of Lisp, which is, uh, you know, a 63-year-old um, programming language. But it's got lots of um, applications that you can use um, in the kind of modern world as well. So Goal is... Um, uh, game-oriented uh, assembly lisp, which was uh, used by Naughty Dog, and they actually used it for uh, Jackson Daxter and also Crash Bandicoot. So there's a lot of kind of history and gaming there as well, and it's like one of those old languages like uh, Fortran. So it's yeah. quite interesting to hear about why he uses Lisp, and he's you know wrote some books on it as well. Yeah, and he's actually making kind of a, a retro-inspired computer called the um, the Lisperati 1000 to run it. Kind of looks a bit like those uh, old Amstrad PCW word processors. Yeah. So um, we hear all about that. And also making uh, new retro games for the Playdate, which is a system we've talked about before. It's a bit like a, a Game Boy, but it's got like a handle on the side of it, hasn't it? And it's, Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a weird one because the handle, I always looked at that and I thought it was for winding it up, you know, like yeah. a kind of clockwork <laughs> one, but it's actually a, a, like a device for uh, different input, you know, if you're walking and stuff. And there's quite a few innovative games in there and it's all uh, run off um, LCD as well. So it's, uh, you know, really low powered. And uh, it lasts ages, the batteries do, on those uh, devices. And we haven't really talked about the play date much, have we? No, I mean, there's got to be a killer fishing game on there, I'm sure. You know, that's the perfect control for that, isn't it? So uh, we're going to be joined by this week's special guest, Conrad Barsky. He's coming up in around half an hour from now. But of course, before we do that, we like to bring you up to speed on what's been happening in the world of retro from over the last week. And uh, it's not very often that we see games retroactively online enabled, but Sega are doing it with one of their most loved 90s titles. Yeah, this is a kind of 
blown my mind a little bit, but also Dan kind of just before we started recording <laughs> pointed a, a key detail out to it as well. So this is a Virtual Fighter Free TB, which the TB is important because of Virtual Fighter Free uh, came out in 1996. I didn't realize yeah. it it came out like that long ago. You know, that's not long after the first two in my mind. Like, yeah, I mean, I remember playing Virtua Fighter 1 when it first came out and, you know, those polygon graphics were like nothing I'd seen in the arcade before. You know, blew my yeah, mind that game. Virtua Fighter 3, um, just, it, it looks incredible. And obviously TB, the updated version that came out in 97, looks even better. And it was So actually- it's not uh, three terabytes that it stands for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what it stands for, to be perfectly honest, but it was... Uh, it team was, Battle, it was, apparently. Is it Team Battle? Okay, cool. So it was, uh, oh yeah, stands for Team Battle. It says it right there. <laughs> um, so it was, it was an updated version of, you know, Virtual Fighter 3. Um, but the reason we're talking about this is because they have reintroduced the game in Japanese arcades. And like you say, they have given it online capabilities. And mm. at first I thought this was like a mod somebody had made and you play it on the Sega Saturn or Dreamcast or, you know, just on emulation or something. But no, this is Sega have put this out and it has gone into Japanese arcades. And Dan did point out to me, because I was a bit confused, it's not on the original arcade hardware, which would have been crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is on a cabinet called the all, uh, the on Sega All Dot, I think it's called, the Sega All Dot Net cabinet, um, which were used for Virtual Fighter 5 and they came out in 2013. Yeah. And they work on like a... In Japan, it's very popular. There's like a card system with a lot of arcade games where imagine like a credit card where you kind of like save your scores and stuff and your data. You know, you put your money into the machine and then you scan your card and it, you kind of pick up where you left off. With, well, you, you go know, to different arcades with the card then, can you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, essentially, you. it's like a memory, it's a memory card essentially, but it is like a little plastic, you know, like loyalty card, like what you might get in a restaurant or something. So they've... Um, taken the um team battle which would be like you know local play in the arcades yeah. if you had yeah. two or three arcade machines and you'd hook up and then they've added a online function to that yeah and, essentially uh, enabled like matching and you know yeah. uh that's that's a really smart idea i'd love to yeah. see that done on loads of different devices as well and um kind of old arcade games because that mode's already in there yeah exactly and you know it just it just kind of makes me pine for, you know, the glory days of arcade and stuff like that. But, that you know, in Japan, they're, they're revisiting, you know, these 25-year-old franchises. Well, the franchise itself is 30 years old. But these 25-year-old games, which are still popular and still have great, you know, fighting mechanics and stuff like that. And, yeah, just in, incorporating online mode and stuff. And, it, it yeah, it's Sega. It might be a little bit gimmicky, but you know, there's definitely something in it, I think. And I think it's interesting as well that the the basically because I've not seen an online enabled arcade cabinet before, so it's cool that you're going to be able to go to an arcade, you know, put your money on or your card or whatever, and be able to play with someone else in another arcade in another yeah. location, like virtually. Which um, I think is awesome because you know there are times when you know, you, particularly when the arcades were big, you'd often you know be playing a game or your mates playing another one. You want to have a two play game, but there's no one else around to hop on yeah. it. So I think you know for. For that, that's just really cool. The fact that you can basically, you know, have a match game with someone else who's in another location on an arcade. Yeah, yeah. It made me think as well that, I mean, you know, Virtua Fighter, I can't remember when was the last game. I've got a feeling it was like Virtua Fighter, was it like five or something? I think it was five. We actually covered it on the show a couple of years ago, I think, about they mm. did re-release it. But yeah, I want to say- Yeah, the Virtua Ultimate Fighter Showdown, five. wasn't it, in, in yeah. 21 they released, yeah. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. So, but yeah, it's been it's been a while. 
Yeah, it makes me think they should kind of, you know, revisit that for the home platforms. It feels like it's long overdue. So, but the fact that Sega are, you know, giving it a little bit of love, maybe that's on their mind right now. Uh, speaking of which, actually, you spotted this uh, really cool kind of homemade Virtua Fighter robot, didn't you? That I know you've, you've loved this, Joe. Yeah, yeah, this, uh, this was just a little random. I just thought, you know what? It's weird that on the same day that this was announced, I spotted that a um, somebody had made a Virtual Fighter 5. I don't know the names of the Virtual Fighter characters, which I'm um, a little bit ashamed to say. I'm t- all over Tekken and Street Fighter. And, it's Akira, the, the main character. Oh, okay, cool. isn't he? Akira Yuki. Akira Yuki. Okay, cool. I'm glad. Isn't there like that drunken master as well? Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, somebody is uh, not based on Virtual Fighter 5. Sorry, he's based on the original Virtual Fighter here. Uh, made a little robot of him kind of doing his little, uh, his little kata, uh, which is pretty impressive. Um, I would love to see that as a little Christmas toy. Uh, oh, uh, there's oh, yeah. a 3D printed one that you can get as well. Oh, <laughs> so really? You can, yeah, you know, kind of fold it and make your own uh, version or, or, you know, use plastic and do it as well. So I think there's some paper models. And, uh, yeah, I'm just, like, looking at a video at the moment um, on GameSpot of a, a, of a 3D virtual fighter. Uh, oh, robot yeah <laughs> i love That's this the, the fact that there's some videos that you put on uh, on twitter uh, i'll link up if you want to check these is one of the uh, the little virtual fighter uh, robot playing the uh, the astro city mini console you know the, yeah the i'm literally just watching that yeah which uh, is very, very fantastic cool. So, uh, yeah, you should definitely sell those. They look awesome. So if you want to check out those videos and uh, the news about Virtua Fighter 3TB, uh, finally get an online play 25 years later. I'll link those up in our show notes as well. Now, we did mention it won't be long until the, the big man comes down your chimney and uh, the Christmas games have already started arriving as well. And I thought I'd um, just mention something very cool that has been running for a couple of years now as well. I don't think we've mentioned on the podcast before, but if you're an Amiga fan, there is a great resource. It's a website called the Amiga Christmas Tree. Now, this is run by um, Cammy, who Ravi will know, you know, she's like a... You know, yeah, big, she does well the uh, Games Jam. Yeah, yeah, really well known, yeah. uh, bigger in the, in the Amiga community. And basically what she does every year is um, she puts together this list of all the Christmassy games that you might want to play on your Amiga that you can download, including a lot of the classics. I mean, you know, the, the Christmas Lemmings games are on here, games like, you know, Fire and Ice Christmas Edition and stuff like that. But there's a lot of like new PD games in here as well and kind of, um, you know, cover disc demos from back in the day. Links to download them all directly. She's got like a section for uh, Amiga mods that are obviously Amiga music files. So if you want to listen to like, you know, Wham's Last Christmas, blasting through on glorious Paula 8-bit audio on your Amiga. You could go too much Christmas sometimes, (laughs) you know, playing the game, listening to the march. I love it. Not too much Amiga, too much Christmas. Too much Christmas for Ravi. (laughs) Never too much Amiga. A resident Grinch. Um, And there's a demo section as well with a load of like classic uh, Amiga demos, you know, going back to like 1989 from all of the uh, the old cracking crews as well. Um, So if you want something really festive for your Amiga, uh, definitely a website worth checking out. That's called the Amiga Christmas Tree. And one that I imagine is going to be making it onto there very soon because because uh, you spotted this, Joe. This looks very cool. This is a, an unofficial ZX Spectrum to Amiga conversion of a game that I must admit I hadn't played before, a game called Crimbo. Uh, yeah, this this looks like a conversion that's been done. And I, I quite like these. You know, when they used to do um, ZX Spectrum to Amiga stuff, I, I remember back in the days there were loads of little conversions and kind of cover discs that would come out, um, you know, that were conversions to Specky games. And sometimes they'd jazz them up a bit and they'd yeah. have... Uh, you know, sometimes they'd say higher graphics, but a lot of the time I, I prefer the specky version. 
versions because they had a bit of, you know, soul with them. And when they cleaned them up a bit, uh, some of them lost that kind of quality. Well, this looks like a more uh, recent Spectrum game. came out in 2010 by um, a publisher called Little Shop of Pixels. And I'm in the Spectrum version. I'm watching some gameplay footage of it now. looks very similar to the Amiga version, only um, the Amiga version's got a lot more colours, as you'd imagine. Um, But in terms of gameplay, I mean, this does look lots of fun, doesn't it? It's called A Gloop Troop's Tale Crimbo. And it's basically a little platformer game where you play a Santa. Very cutesy. Yeah, it feels very arcadey. It, very, very arcadey. It reminds me of, um, is it Bubble Bubble? For the yes, NES, that was the first the thing I thought. Yeah, yeah, the original. Um, yeah, or Snow Bros well. or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, lo- it looks really nice, to be fair. And I can see, you know, obviously, I, I know it's not running on the Spectrum, it's running on, you know, Amiga, but I can see, I can visualise the Spectrum version of it, if that makes sense. Because like, it's got a color. black background. Yeah, it's the black background. <laughs> like Spectrum like, games, yeah. You know, just the straight edges of it and everything like that. But yeah, this looks nice, this does. Yeah, and apparently they're, they're constantly upgrading it as well. There's um, going to be like a new AGA version with more levels on the way soon as well. And they're going to be uh, probably upgrading it even more for next Christmas. But it's one of those games that it, basically you can name your own price. So if you want something nice and festive for your Amiga, that's available now on there. Itch.io or Itch.io. I'll link that up in the show notes too. Now, um, what about finding this in your Christmas stocking this year, Joe? You ever dreamed about owning a Sega Neptune? Every night, I write this on my list to Santa, hey, Santa. every year. <laughs> Joe, he's here. He's going to deliver he's it here. for you. He's bringing it me. <laughs> well, this is a reality for at least one person because uh, they've made their own. Um, for people who might not be familiar with the Neptune, explain kind of what it was. So the Sega Neptune was uh, Sega's canc- cancelled 1995 console, which was essentially going to be a consoleized version of the 32X peripheral for the Mega Drive. So imagine it looked very similar to the the concept of it. it, looked very similar to the Mega Drive 2 model, but it was more slick. It was all black, no red buttons or anything. Mm. And then essentially it was just going to play 32X cartridges, you know, with controller ports on the front and stuff like that. And it was, um, it had been revealed by Sega, uh, I think in 1994, destined for a 1995 release. And it was going to be $200, yeah. but obviously uh, the mess that Sega was kind of in at the time with all their console peripherals and uh, add-ons and, you know, the Sega Saturn pretty much, well, the Sega Saturn was out, I believe. They scrapped it. would have been it. in Japan by then, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, they did end up, you know, ultimately scrapping it. And the 32X was was a failure, unfortunately, um, or fortunately, depending how you want to look you have, at You haven't it. got a 32X in your collection, have I you? I haven't got a 32X. Oh, yeah. And as much as, as cool as this looks... The reason we're talking about this is a modder uh, who goes by DVI-ZIX has created the uh, Sega Neptune and put it out for 3D printing for people, Mm. you know, to go download and print your own model of one. But then obviously you have to be very handy with the old uh, soldering, etc. Yeah, so so essentially what you do is uh, you get your 32X, Mm. um, take it to bits and kind of turn it into a consoleized form. And yeah. then stick it in this uh, 3D printed case. And yeah, there yeah. is a lot of soldering and there's a lot yeah. of like little devices that you need to actually get it all going. But it's a nice little concept, um, you know, and having stuff like the um, uh, the D, having the pads actually connected to it and, uh, you know, all these extra things does turn it into its own like standalone unit. 
yeah, I mean, um, there's a video of Nacho Nacho doing it, and it it looks fantastic. Like the finished product, it it looks like a you know a, a high street. You know, you would purchase this from Sega. Like yeah. it looks absolutely fantastic. But yeah, he said that the mod did cost three hundred dollars without actually the other Sega parts. So that was before you play for the Mega Drive and the 32X, it costs yeah, 300 Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the 32X is not getting any cheaper now either, is it? <laughs> I yeah. I get, get mine for I 50 think, quid a few years ago, and it was like, wow. Yeah, I think a 32X is about £300, maybe. Just wow. needs to add a, a Sega UK. CD in there as well. And then, yeah, uh, <laughs> that would be pretty well. <laughs> little slot loader in the side. It could work, that actually. Yeah, that would <laughs> it be It awesome. could work. Get pretty hot in there, I imagine. But um, yeah, I do think it's very cool. Like you said, it, it, it does look, the quality of it looks like it you know, could be a production machine. And I think it would have been nice if that came out, kind of an all-in-one Sega Mega Drive with a 32X kind of built in as well. Because um, I do remember, I mean, I've been reading the, uh, this kind of brought back a random memory, uh, reading the, the SegaRetro.org article about it as well. They mentioned yeah. back in 2001, there was a gaming magazine, you know, EGM in America. They announced that um, a massive warehouse had been f- found full of prototypes of the Neptune that were going to go and sell to but the general that, public. That always put me off, you know, um, I always thought like the Mega Drive was so good, but then having like the 32X and the Sega CD as add-ons, I always thought they should have released like an actual, you know, new console. And uh, they did with the CD eventually with the multi-mega. Yeah. um, Yeah. Which is like, that's like the Holy Grail of like Sega. Well, it's not quite the Holy Grail. There's some other mad Sega stuff out there, but that's generally about what, 800 pounds for one of them now. Mm. But yeah, the 32X, this this was the solution to that, Ravi. But yeah, never came to be, unfortunately. And you know, if you hook a 32X up to a Mega Drive a minute, especially when, you know, because I'm looking over, you know, and I know the Sega fans like to big it up as the Tower of Power, but it is such a messy looking thing, isn't it? With all the, Yeah, it yeah, does look messy. And like, I don't know if that time period between them making a the Mega Drive and then going up to the Saturn was that long, but it seemed like ages for me. <laughs> It was like no, it, it wasn't there, very long at all for the yeah. next Sega console, you know. Yeah, but probably because so many consoles were coming out at that time, it probably seemed like more, you know. Yeah, and a year felt a long time when you were a kid, didn't it? Um, so yeah, I mean, it is cool to kind of see, you know, what could have been. I think just having that on on your desk, being able to, you know, make one yourself. And finally, if you maybe read about that system as a kid and were dreaming of owning one, there are other parts available now by the looks of it to make your own. So if you want to check out that video, I'll link that in our show notes as well. Now, unfortunately, I was uh, kind of hyped for a bit of Christmas viewing. I mentioned I've got that week off coming up a bit later on this month. I thought, oh, I'll sit down and watch this. Unfortunately, it's not out until 2024, but it looks like it could be worth waiting for. This is coming to uh, Amazon Prime, and this is a TV series of a game series, actually, that I think would lend itself very well to a TV show, and it looks pretty good, this. What do you guys think of this? It is a trailer for the new Fallout television series. I'm looking forward to this one. Mm. Um I really enjoyed The Last of Us. Um, obviously, it wasn't as action-packed as the uh, as the game. And, you, See, I, and I gave up on The Last of Us. I watched the first maybe three or four, then I, kinda, oh, really? then I just didn't get back into it. Yeah, it, I'm not sure. It, 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 it's a little bit slow in the middle, but I think because yeah. I loved the game so much, I think, you know, I, I, I stuck with it. And I really enjoyed it in the end. Um, but I, I feel really guilty right now because I adored Fallout 3, Fallout New Vegas, I really enjoyed Fallout 4. Got a little bit of hate Fallout 4 did, probably because it wasn't quite as good as them two, mm. as a uh, free in New Vegas. Um, I have Fallout 1 and 2, on, you know, on big box for PC, but I've never played them, and I need to go back and play them. But I was watching this trailer, and I was like, oh my God, like, look at all these little Easter eggs. And then I was like trying to write my notes for the podcast, and I was like, oh my God, what's that character called? 
like what's that you know what's that called again and i felt really guilty because of i've not really played you know the fallout games in years like yeah. you know kind of you know because there hasn't been one other than fallout 76 which is the online one which i never fancied so i feel guilty because of you know i've kind of like not been into fallout recently but this is going to bring me back i think i'm gonna you know install them again and play them because of the the quality of this looks fantastic and it's Fallout, you've got to remember, is obviously set in like an alternative 1950s. And it's like, I think they've really captured the essence of it in this trailer because of it's, you know, it's post-apocalyptic, you know, nuclear disaster apocalypse. But then it's all colourful and, you know, lovely and bright as well. Well, the thing is as well, like the Fallout world's really absolutely amazing. And it it hinges on the whole nostalgia uh, factor. So I can imagine, you know, an older audience that wouldn't be aware of the video games, you know, like my parents could probably watch Fallout and get stuff about, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and um, the kind of historical points, but also stuff like Oppenheimer um, coming out recently and being really Mm. huge and that whole kind of idea of like 1950s technology. And I like how in Fallout it advances, but it retains that kind of vibe as well you know it's uh like the pit boy and stuff is a imagined kind of piece of technology and then also the robots in there and stuff i i think it looks really interesting it's uh something i'm definitely gonna watch and uh to be honest i prefer this than something like the last of us because it feels more i don't know grounded in 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 kind of fiction and um yeah it is just my kind of jam like uh, that whole nuclear disaster and, yeah uh, you yeah. know uh, nuclear post-apocalyptic world yeah in the fact that you watch the trailer like you said joe yeah it's kind of got that kind of looks a bit 1950s 1960s sci-fi doesn't it the yeah the way it's shot you know like you said there's really vibrant colors um and obviously 50s music playing in the trailer as well have they um, done bioshock that needs to be one though. they haven't I don't done think bioshock so, no. No, imagine bioshock that would be good it's it's funny because i remember us doing a uh a new segment. God, it must have been about two or three years ago. And I think it was when The Last of Us was announced and we were talking about an article and it was saying other, like, you know, video game franchises which would work and Fallout was one of them. Mm. So it's interesting that we're sat here now talking about it. But yeah, really excited for this one. Uh, April 12th, 2024. It does kind of feel like now, I mean, you know, a couple of years ago, we'd always talk about movie or television adaptations of video games have been dreadful because they very rarely got it right. But it does kind of feel like, you know, in recent years... It's something they're taken seriously now as like source material. I think right. they kind of did so many that it had to come good at the end. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah so uh, I've got every faith in this. Looks really good from the trailer. A um, few months to wait for it yet, but if you want to check that out, it's about a minute 40. I'll put that YouTube video in our show notes as well. Now, um, BBC Basic, that was something I used back in the day. And um, you guys, do you ever try programming? Joe, you ever do any at school? Do you remember? No. (laughs) (laughs) Never had classes programming at all? No, nothing like that. No, nothing at my school. I I did. Yeah, yeah. But it it wasn't in basic. Uh, Mm. It was a lot of web stuff because I was there when Internet Explorer just hit. So a bit of the (laughs) older generation. I know, uh, Dan, you were on the black and white computers. uh, Well, it wasn't quite black and white. (laughs) I'll need the game. Uh, I'm not on the mainframes in the 40s. No, but when I was, I mean, we got, um, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, we used uh, BBC Micros at school. Then we got Acorn Archimedes. And I remember about, you know, probably when I was about eight, nine years old, uh, that we had um, a class where one of our teachers basically she brought a load of magazines in. And it was, I think around that time, that was probably still when the BBC, 
you know, the um, it was on the national curriculum, the Epsilon program, the literacy project was probably still going. Um, so basically we had a couple of classes where we sat down and just did the, you know, 10, go to 10. ten yeah, yeah. We had a BBC kind of suite, but it kind of got gutted at that point. And then yeah. an acorn suite came in and <laughs> took over. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we literally had them at infant school. Then when I went to junior school, we had Archimedes, but the acorn Archimedes could run BBC basic as well. Um, you know, you literally press, press, think it was escape on that. And you went and dropped into BBC basic. Ah, it's all pure risk gossip at mine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're all risk gossip has got BBC basic built in. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, you, yeah. even even now, if you're on a um, Raspberry Pi, you can drop into BBC. It's probably basically. been decades since I've touched Riscos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's a really powerful variation of BASIC. You know, back in the day, it was generally considered. So I remember you could put a, like assembly code in line with it as well. But I mean, yeah, it was kind of something that we we briefly learned at school. But then I really loved it so much. I remember saying to the teacher, you know, can you teach us a bit more about this? And me and my friend Gary would often, you know, stop back after school for an hour or two while the teacher was marking, just to mess around in BBC Basic. I mentioned before that we tried to do like an adventure game that we planned out on graph paper and everything. Didn't go anywhere in the end. It was too complicated. But BBC Basic, I think, you know, if you talk about those kind of classic micros of the 80s, generally regarded as the best version of Basic on those machines. But it turns out that it is actually still going very strong. And the latest version of it only came out two weeks ago. And uh, today you can run BBC Basic on pretty much anything now, there's a version of this. It's called a BBC Basic for a SDL 2.0. There's a version for Windows, a version for Mac OS, Mac M1 machines, um, on Linux, obviously a version for the Raspberry Pi. There's a version for Android you can download. Well, yeah, that's because it's SDL, and SDL is uh, like cross-platform, basically. Yeah. So being able to develop in that environment means you'll be able to port it out for everything. I'm sure we'll see, um, you know all sorts of devices running this, but it's a really good idea to put it in that um, SDL because then, you know, you can have it on anything, maybe yeah. even mobile phones, you know. Well, you can. It's, it's, on, yeah, it's on the so. iOS app store. You can download it straight from the Apple app store, um, which, and there's actually the, the smartphone version of it has got a, basically, you know, it's it's optimized to work on touchscreens. So that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. It looks incredible. And there are some demos that you can, ch- you can check out. I'll put this um, article from Hackaday in the show notes too, but they've really kind of souped up the capabilities of this. Now, in terms of the syntax of it, it is still very similar to what you would have used on, you know, the, uh, the BBC micro. And actually, if you look at the, uh, the code they've got running here, it says, um, there's like, you know, remarks at the top of it. It says that uh, this version from September, 2001 is for the Acorn A3000. So it looks like they're kind of running a game that they wrote for the, uh, the Acorn Archimedes that, like you said, is kind of translated to run on basically a modern machine. Yeah, I guess, yeah, porting's going to be really helpful with this and, uh, you know, speed it up. Yeah, well, there's also, I mean, it can access 256 megabytes of memory now as well. There's extra features in there to work with kind of modern graphics cards. And the thing about it, I, I mean, I'm looking at this and I think, you know, kids today, I mean, I remember learning stuff like, you know, rudimentary JavaScript and, uh, you know, whatever those web languages were like you did, rather, you know, before I left school in the late 90s, we'll learn a bit, a bit of HTML and that kind of thing. But I think, I mean, I'm looking at this, do you think there's like still a, a space for like this, like a programming language like BASIC for kids today? Yeah, yeah, I think there is. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the classic languages as well. Now that you talk about it, I do actually remember us doing, um, I think it was a, like a text adventure um, I think it was a text adventure creator in, in like BBC basic. And, uh, yeah, we used to write them as well. So a distant memory of me uh, using that has come up, but, um, yeah, I think as people look back and maybe if you can add some new functions in there, speed up stuff and, uh, you know, get some older software, then 
put it in basic, jazz it up a bit, have it on SDL, have it running on a mobile phone. You know, that's that's pretty cool. So I mean, you you remember like like I do, you know, when you when you're a kid and you actually make your first program and you see something, even if it's, you know, just a, a space invader ship moving left and right across the screen or a Pong clone, the fact that you've made it, having that running for the first time, it's just, you know, an incredible experience. Yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, it's like magic, isn't it, really? Yeah, 100%. And I think, you know, I, I encourage, you know, more parents and schools to kind of sit down with the kids and do this kind of thing because, you know, I've got my nephew loves video games, but he's got no idea how they work in the back end. You know, I don't think he does. I mean, he's only at the moment he's nine. So he's probably around the same age I was when I first started doing the basic programming, but he's not learned anything like that at school so far. And I know we've done stories before about them kind of reintroducing programming into the national curriculum. I'm not sure. It seems to come and go all the time. I'm not sure whether it's... There seems to be a lot of Python around and uh, people doing that. Yeah, which makes sense. Now, I remember, you know, chatting to uh, Francois Lyonnais, who made uh, Amos and Stoss back in the day, and he worked on a new version of it, didn't he, a couple of years ago, which I believe's kind of morphed into something else now, but he's kind of marketing that as a, a game creation engine for kids that's basically based on Amos back in the day, you know, basic. So I think there is definitely still, you know, a market for it. And uh, the fact that this can run on so many platforms, I mean, if you've got kids who have got a couple of weeks off over Christmas and the fancy, you know, making a game for their iPhone, which looks like it's possible on this. Um, and if you use BBC Basic back in the day, you might be able to help them out a little bit. So there is a website for this and it is available on uh, the apps, like I said, as well. I've tried to go to the website, which is BBC Basic uk forward slash BBC SDL. Although it's told me right now that the bandwidth limit for the website has been exceeded. Oh, wow. It's, so, it's yeah. popular then. <laughs> so yeah, very nice to see BBC Basic uh, continuing into the modern age. So hopefully that site will be back up very soon. Now we're going to be chatting to this week's special guest, Conrad Barsky. He's coming up in just a moment talking about developing for the Atari Jaguar and also his love of Lisp as well and making games for the, the play date. But of course, before Christmas, we have still got a few weeks left to work. And uh, we've talked about this before, Joe, the fact that, you know, when we get into the office of a morning or if you're working remotely as well, how many different services you have to log into every day. Oh, oh Jesus. Yeah. Every single day I come in. I have to boot up my laptop, which I've been told I can't keep open anymore because I'm killing it. <laughs> can't just put it on sleep overnight. So I Wasting come in, that battery. <laughs> open it up, turn on all my different apps. You know, you've got to open Teams, you've got to open Outlook. You've got to open, I can't go into any of the other things I've got to open because <laughs> of work, but I'll have a good, what, 20 different apps open down at the bottom of uh, my taskbar there. And it, it is just tedious doing yeah. it every single day. And then having to navigate it, you know, across two or three screens every single day as well. Even pulling that data together, you know, trying to get yeah, them yeah. to work with each other as well. I mean, one of the companies I work for we must have about three intranets. You never know where to find a file. I mean, they're all over the place. So why don't you simplify that? I mean, if you um, if you work with a, a company or a small business or even for yourself as well, this could be really useful. Now, this is this week's sponsor, our wonderful friends at Notion. Now, Notion is incredible. Not only does it bring all your services into one handy workspace, but one incredible thing about it, and obviously this is a thing that everyone is interested in right now, is artificial intelligence. And Notion bring the power of Notion Q&A, which is their AI tool, to basically all of your workspaces and everything that you could do in your daily work life, you know, your notes, your docs, your company-wide projects, all of that as well, with their AI assistant that can answer questions. For example, you could ask, you know, a question about 
next quarter's company roadmap and it could find that for you. It could maybe a question about the the marketing campaign proposal that you're looking for or a long lost link that one of your colleagues sent you six months ago. It can do that all in seconds for you. So occasionally you'll get it like me, Joe, you'll need an urgent bit of information and mm. you think, oh, how do I keep my sanity intact, right? Who sent me that looking through your messages? Notion will save you all of that when the, you know, because obviously your work gets complex as well, rather than digging through all your files and your conversation histories. Notion Q&A comes in and it will answer any questions you've got, making use of your entire database of knowledge to make sure that the answers are actually really helpful as well. So Notion AI can give you instant answers to your questions using information from across your company work, your wiki, your projects, your docs, your meeting notes as well. Rather than turning to a co-worker to ask them, ask Q&A, it will search through thousands of documents in seconds and it will give you an answer in a clear language, no matter how large or complex your workspace is. So that means Notion AI will do all the tedious stuff for you, meaning that you can concentrate on your meaningful work and you can try it for free. Now, we've got you an amazing link, of course. Check this out. You'll be really helping out the podcast. Support our sponsors, support the podcast. Try Notion AI for free by going to notion.com slash retro hour. All lowercase, notion.com slash retro hour. Try out the powerful, easy to use Notion AI today. When you use our link, support the podcast, notion.com slash retro hour. And we massively appreciate the support of our wonderful friends at Notion. Now, it will be our uh, little patrons' Christmas do coming up in a couple of weeks. I think we're doing the uh, the December Christmas hangout a bit earlier this month, aren't we? Because we normally do it on the last Sunday of the month. We figured out that's, uh, I think it's New Year's Eve. New so Year's we might Eve. Been, yeah, I yeah, think might people might be a bit busy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just as free. I'm sat there with a black eye because my missus has gone ballistic at me for doing the retro. <laughs> Where is everyone? Where is everyone, guys? I'd do it from a rave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the week, <laughs> on my phone. The week before we gonna... is Christmas Eve. Um, yeah, exactly. So we're, we're either doing it mid-month or we're going to do it on a, you know, on, a, on a Friday or Saturday night, but we'll let people know, yeah? Yeah, so um, there's only a couple of weeks if you want to join us for that as well. You might have heard us talking about this before. Basically, our massive virtual users group where we get a load of our patrons together. We geek out about all things retro, you know, anything can come up in the conversation. Great little community that we've got there, and we welcome new users in all the time. So we'd love to see you there for the uh, the Christmas hangout that is coming up in a couple of weeks' time. Of course, our Christmas jumpers are encouraged for that one too. And if you do join us on Patreon, now's a very good time. Not only will you get access to the hangout this month as well, but also you'll unlock, I think it's now... Th- 37 back episodes of the uh, the bonus patrons only podcast that we do forgot the name of it then the retro after hours <laughs> the <laughs> bonus one that's the, the one. other podcast <laughs> yeah so we do this every month it's you know an hour and a half two hours sometimes where we do a different topic each month obviously all about retro and we're recording the latest one the december one uh, next week as well so if you want to get access to all of that along with getting the usual podcast early some weeks you get it ad free every single episode and we're actually doing another about 10 minutes of news just for our patrons and you get that on every single episode so if you'd like to sign up right now a very good time to support this podcast and make sure that we can continue going into 2024, you know, just by throwing a couple of quid a month into the tip jar. All the details to sign up are at theretrohour.com. And we do have a couple of new patrons to induct into the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming. And I'll let you guys induct them into the Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. (laughs) Who we got, Ravi? Richard Vernon. And Steve Liderman. Thank you so much for your support, guys. We really appreciate that. And if you'd like to join our wonderful patrons community, all the details are at theretrohour.com. 
Right then, patrons, stay tuned. A couple more stories coming up for you in just a minute. For everyone else, there will be more news on next Friday's podcast. And next, we chat to this week's special guest, Conrad Barsky, all about developing for the Atari Jaguar, his love of the Lisp programming language, all of that and more, next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. And uh, someone who's really interesting, actually, got a very varied career, including working on, uh, regular listeners will know that I uh, collect for the Atari Jaguar, and a game that I used to love back in the day, uh, Flip Out, a really interesting puzzle game on the Jaguar, and an unreleased title for the Atari Jaguar CD that we'll talk a bit about too. And also, he's a big supporter of the Lisp programming language, and he's working on some really interesting current retro-inspired platforms, including the Playdate console. So we'll talk about all that and more, I'm sure, with this week's special guest, Conrad Barsky. How's it going, Conrad? It's going great. Uh, Greetings from uh, Mill Valley, California. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, taking a bit of time out of your busy morning to uh, to join us. It's a uh, yeah, dark evening here in the UK now, so uh, yeah, the nights are drawing in, but it's um, yeah, going to be interesting to chat to you for the next 45 minutes or so about some of these great titles that you worked on. I mean, one thing that we always like to do with our guests is kind of find out where their journey began, you know, right from day one. I mean, do you remember your first like introduction to computers? What first got that bug? What got you interested in them? Yeah, so I probably had a, a pretty strange background in that regard. I, uh, from two to six years of age, I grew up on the island of Ibiza. So this was in the late seventies. Uh, wow. this, this is an island in the Mediterranean. You guys in the UK, of course, know about Ibiza. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, uh, and so I was kind of isolated from technology altogether. Um, and uh, you know, we didn't even like. I think we had like a couple of uh, arcade games that showed up towards the end when I was there. Like I remember seeing a breakout cabinet there, uh, but like no computer exposure. And then uh, once I was school age, my parents moved back to uh, Germany where, where we lived at the time. And uh, I uh, uh, and my dad uh, bought a, uh, that was around the time when the, the TI-99-4A uh, was kind of uh, starting to fall apart as in terms of a viable platform and so you could buy them uh very cheap in the bargain bins of the the tech stores in germany and so my dad mm-hmm. picked up a ti-99 4a and uh and, and i remember he uh started programming like the first pr- program in the manual which was of course uh you know hey what is your name and then it says you know and then it prints the name on the screen and then it says you know uh 30 go to 20 and then it does the infinite loop where it prints your name and he uh, he yeah. worked on that for three hours, and he couldn't get the program working. And uh, and then he realized that uh, he had used a uh, letter O instead of a, a, a zero when he typed in <laughs> the uh, the the line number, and uh, that that because of that the program wouldn't run. And so that, that was so frustrating. He never touched the TN ninety nine four eight. He just handed it to me, and uh, I immediately got addicted to computer programming after that. And uh, just uh, yeah, just went crazy on the on the TN ninety nine four eight back in the day, but but that was already like the end of the glory days of the TN ninety nine four eight. So I had like a bit of an outdated computer, but uh, uh, certainly that I, I got the uh, the video game programming bug at that time. It's a good job that the uh, the Texas Instruments didn't do a better job with that manual then, otherwise your your career may have never begun in computers. Yeah, the the manual was <laughs> was spectacular. Actually, uh, I, I really enjoyed it, and the. Uh, well, well, I guess my dad, like no manual is going to tell you that you can't use the letter O for a zero. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But yeah, the manual was actually really good. And uh, I had the extended basic cartridge, which allowed you to do 28 sprites at once, which was like kind of crazy because like the, the Commodore 64 could only do eight sprites at a time unless you were doing like crazy assembly tricks. So that was, it was actually a pretty capable uh, platform. So tell us a bit more about your journey with computers then. So after the Texas, I mean, did you get another machine? What did you kind of upgrade through? And what was kind of your path with, uh, with computers when you, when you were young? Yeah, so I, I guess I upgraded to the Commodore 64 at some point, and, uh, uh, and especially I got really addicted to the SID music, and I still listen to SID music uh, every day while I'm working. Uh, yeah, and that's kind of where I picked up assembly language and stuff. And uh, uh, yeah, and then I, um, my parents moved to Florida, and uh, that's where I um, just randomly happened to end up at this company called Gorilla Systems, which was kind of a video game developer in uh, New York Tampa uh, in Florida. And uh, they, uh, th- there was this weird thing back then. There was something called the, uh, the Time Warner Interactive Cable Trial. So the mm-hmm. idea was this was like um, in the days when like the idea of having uh, video on demand was like an uh, unbelievable uh, concept. And so what they did is they took some like sil- Silicon Graphics servers and they put them in like a neighborhood in Orlando and they uh, gave everyone like a Silicon Graphics workstation that they just, they told the, the, just in one neighborhood, they did a trial and they just told everybody, this is your new cable box. And, uh, oh, wow. and, and they, uh, and they, and, uh, and on the servers, they had like a hundred uh, movie titles that they had uh, MPEG at like really low quality. But back then it was like unbelievable that you could just have a hundred movies <laughs> on demand on a, on a server and people could, you know, buy movies on uh, uh, using their television. The idea was, you know, the, the way the future was going to happen is that television was going to become interactive, which, of course, is completely not how things turned out with the Internet and mm. everything. Uh, but but yeah, so I, anyway, so I worked on some of that. And I, I along. So when I was in college, I was working on a uh, an, an application that let you uh, purchase uh, pizza using uh, uh, your remote control in your TV. So it was like a, an interactive app where you could. So so the idea was you would watch TV and then there'd be a commercial, a pizza commercial, and then you could press a button on your remote and then you could actually order a pizza. And, uh, you know, that just blew everybody's mind because this was like before the Internet was like well known. And uh, yeah, and so I made like the app that let you put the pepperoni slices on the pizza and stuff. And it, and it was all programmed in 3D and OpenGL because this was like a silicon graphics uh, computer that everybody had as a cable box. And, and then a little later, they got uh, some, uh, because Time Warner was working with uh, Atari at some capacity, we got uh, some opportunity to work on Atari games. That's incredible. I remember watching Sandra Bullock um, ordering a pizza on her computer in the movie The Net and thinking, <laughs> oh, I hope I see that in my lifetime. Um, yeah. <laughs> and obviously, you were doing it back then as well. That's awesome. So, I mean, yeah. obviously, Flip Out was the game that you were best known for on the Atari Jaguar. And for people who are not familiar with that title, I mean, it was a, a very interesting puzzle game as well. So I'm quite interested to hear kind of the, the background on the, the development of that game and kind of your, your inspirations for it. I mean, were you a, a puzzle game fan before you started work on Flip Out? Um, so I was uh, always a juggler. So I was kind of thinking it would be fun to have a, a juggling dynamic in uh, a puzzle game and that's basically how flip out the flip out design came about so basically you have these these tiles on a board and you always have one more tile than you have spaces on the board so you constantly have to uh, basically juggle the tiles on the board in order to mm. not uh, have the thing uh, crash 
And, uh, and so that was kind of the, the initial idea behind flip out. And then, uh, right around that time is when people started experimenting with, uh, ray trace graphics, uh, in video games. Not, I'm not talking about like real time ray trace. I'm just talking about you, you know, you, <laughs> you have your computer sit for a couple of days, ray tracing some graphics, and then you, uh, you just turn those into bitmaps and you load them into a, a game and then you have a, you know, a quote unquote ray traced game. So there were a lot, this was around the time when Donkey Kong Country came out and they did the, the, the same kind of thing. So that's what we wanted to do with this game. So we, uh, we ray traced, you know, it was all 3D model graphics and ray traced and then turned into bitmaps and then kind of composited on the, the Atari. And uh, yeah, that, that was kind of how the game came about. What, what did you think of the system? Uh, when it came out as well, the Jaguar, and what was it like developing for? Because I know a lot of people um, didn't use its full power because uh, it, it was quite tough, notoriously, to develop for. Yeah, so basically what Atari did is they, uh, I, I mean, I don't, I guess I don't know quite the origin story of, of the Jaguar, but my impression was that th- there were like a couple of developers that worked on this game called Cybermorph, and so they wanted to do a uh, basically a, like a 3D uh, uh, sort of shoot a, shoot 'em up game, and they um, the chipset was kind of designed around that game. And the basic idea behind the game was is that it was going to be grow shaded polygons, so not no textures, just sort of a, a, a shading on on polygons. And they you know they tried to figure out how can we make a chipset that can do this as kind of efficiently as possible at a low price. And so the, the the architecture they came up with was kind of insane. So the the uh, Atari Jaguar had four chips, uh, one Motorola sixty eight thousand, which was a pretty traditional processor, and then it had these two chips called Tom and Jerry, which was uh, one was kind of designed for audio stuff, and the other one for graphics. And those were like sort of state of the art wrist chips. But what was weird about them is they had like a, a cache that was really small. If you didn't use the cache, they were basically very slow. Um, mm. And then the the fourth chip was this blitter chip, which could basically just like move chunks of memory around very quickly and do a couple of other things. And and of course, they always sold the Atari Jaguar as a, a 64-bit uh, system. And the reason they did that is because the blitter chip could move 64 bits at a time around. But of course, nothing else in the system was really in any meaningful way uh, 64-bit. But but yeah, the tr- the tricky thing was is that the the people that developed the Cybermorph game, which was the original pack in title, they came up with this crazy pipeline where they would um, basically move a, a small amount of data into this this cache for these two very fast processors, and then they would like operate on it, you know, for like uh, ten milliseconds or something, and then they would send the data back to the to the main through the main RAM to the uh, to the main system. And they would do this like, uh, uh, you know, for every frame, they would do this like 20 times or something. And they would, so that, so it was this v- very uh, crazy way of doing 3D graphics. But you, you know, if you were really gifted and you really understood the hardware, you could make like a pretty decent 3D game with it. But the, the, I think the problem was, is that, that Atari didn't really buy in 100% into the, uh, the sort of 3D, 3D game concept because that was around the time where people weren't sure would 3d games be any fun because everything before that had been uh, basically 2d and there was a question maybe people just want to play 2d platformers and nobody cares about 3d and and of course sony did the exact opposite they just said okay 
for forget about coming up with some kind of sophisticated architecture that's really flexible. We're just going to make this thing that can push texture mapped triangles at high speed. And that's what they did with the Sony PlayStation. And that it ended up being the winning strategy. And so Sony basically trounced everybody else. And uh, Jaguar was a, a victim of that. It was really hard to program for. And uh, uh, it, it could do lots of, uh, it was a very general system where you could do lots of different types of graphics, but that was the wrong strategy. I, all you wanted was uh, texture map triangles. And uh, a couple of years as later, Flipout got a release on uh, DOS and Windows as well. Um, were you involved in that process? I was not, uh, but the, the programmer on that version was really gifted. And uh, the, uh, that version is actually, I would say, I mean, it's a lot more sophisticated than uh, the original version, but it follows the same formula in terms of uh, the same graphical style. And, uh, but it just had a lot more gameplay, a lot more. Uh, the, the thing is, because it wasn't a difficult platform to program for, they could um, invest a lot more in, in like the other things, like you know, the number of levels and the, the different types of enemies and stuff. So it's a very nice version. It's an interesting time in the the industry as well because you think you know those couple of years that the Jaguar was on the market, you know it, it just felt like such a transition, didn't it? You had stuff like the three DO came and went, and you know Amiga CD thirty two was on the market briefly, and lots of these other systems that some of them were only on the market for six months. You know it was a massive shift between the the Mega Drive Genesis and Super Nintendo until the PlayStation took over. So I guess backing the right console was a, a difficult thing, a bit of a gamble really. And then I know that Atari tried to extend the life of the Jaguar by bringing out the, the CD add-on in 1995. And I know you're working on um, a project on that called Dante's Inferno. What was uh, kind of the story behind that then and the development of that title? Yeah, well, we were working with the uh, Atari Jaguar and just trying to figure out like clever things you could do with the graphics chipset. And um, one thing you could do pretty well is like do um, interesting things with like sort of creating your own sort of uh, video codex where you um, take uh, different frames of graphics and you like interpolate between them. And so we were trying to do this game that was, the idea was kind of like a, um, an interactive uh, movie where you could like, um, but where uh, the, the, the video, you know, is rendering some sort of 3d world and you could kind of decide where you want to go. And then it would sort of, um, you know, have rendered video for pre-rendered video for that part of, you know, the world that, that you want to move through. So, I mean, you know, a lot of, a lot of other games have done similar things like that. So that was kind of what we wanted to do with Dante's Inferno. But what had happened is that, um, the, uh, when we first started working on the Jaguar, they had, uh, just won some kind of lawsuit. I forget who it was against. It might've been against Sega, uh, but it was a lawsuit for like, uh, anti-competitive practices. And so, uh, right. briefly Atari had a really big war chest with money, um, from this lawsuit. And that's and so that's why they kind of um, tried to get a lot of developers, uh, you know, some funding to develop games for the system, including my comp my the, my employer uh, Rilla Systems, and uh, that money you know ran out pretty soon. And so at that point they were kind of you know they could they couldn't really uh, do anything other than just have a few core uh, uh, developers uh, that they, they work with at Atari uh, do any kind of games and stuff. So we made a demo for. Uh, this Dead Days Inferno game, but it never went very far, you know, and the, the, the demo is pretty primitive. I mean, one thing I kind of wonder in general about like the, the uh, video game uh, sort of uh, market at that point is that I, I think that that was kind of the point where people started realizing that the U.S. no longer really had it 
a dominance in hardware like they had in the past. Um, you know, now, of course, you know, back then uh, in 95, when this uh, when our game came out and when the Atari Jaguar had its heyday, you know, like the, the biggest chip company in the world was Intel. And everybody thought, you know, the U.S. is the place to build electronics. But um, I think we now see that uh, that the hardware side of things has shifted to Asia. And, uh, and I think that that, that era of, of video game consoles kind of il- il- was the first sign of that, you know, with Sony uh, dominating so, so much because they, uh, you know, they were just really good at hardware. And, and of course, companies like Jaguar, uh, uh, I'm sorry, like Atari, they were using uh, U.S. companies to develop the, the chipset. And of course, Nintendo used work with Silicon Graphics to develop the mm-hmm. original Nintendo 64. And I think that they... That that would, may may not have been the best decision. Uh, uh, you know, they were they ended up being a little bit behind uh, early on, and of course now the Nintendo sixty four is a beloved system, but back then it was kind of uh, uh, not so successful initially because the PlayStation came out earlier and it uh, just had such a, a great number of titles for it. Well, I know that you're a big fan of the programming language Lisp. And uh, most 80s micros I remember using had BASIC built into them, but obviously you could often get Lisp as a, an additional language on a disk or a cartridge. What is it that appeals to you about the language Lisp? Well, at the, the bottom level, I guess it's just the idea that you kind of want computers to be extremely malleable and you want, and at the most extreme, you know, there was always the idea of sort of self-modifying code. Wouldn't it be great if you uh, you know, wrote programs that could like change themselves and, and how they work and stuff. And Lisp is really kind of the extreme version of that. So you can uh, essentially, when you write a uh, Lisp program, you you think to yourself, well, what would be the best programming language for solving my problem? And then you kind of uh, first use Lisp to design that programming language, and then you and then you write your program with it. So it's like it's kind of a, a mind bending uh, experience if you really get into Lisp, because because the, you have access to like lots of low stuff inside the the compiler and interpreter of the language where you can like uh you know change things on the fly in terms of what the uh the interpreter sees and uh, uh and you can do like really elegant and cool things in that way and also like because i i always i i, knew, I was never professionally trained as a computer programmer so i i was always kind of a cowboy programmer you know i just uh would kind of hmm. uh just Go have at it and try to do cool things, not worrying about you know is this a, you know is this thing going to crash or is it a, a good design or whatever. I just I just love you know programming and trying out stuff. And Lisp is great in that respect because it's a it's a dynamic programming language, so you can you can kind of just start hacking away and seeing what happens. Uh, there's other cool academic languages like Haskell is always sort of a, another one that is mentioned, but that one is extremely strict. You have to like uh, be, you know, the compiler will. You basically you spend all your time just trying to get the compiler to stop complaining about your code, and then as soon as it stops complaining, usually your program works right out of the gate. But it's so frustrating to work in. Whereas Lisp will just let you do anything. <laughs> it's amazing that it's kind of been around since uh, the 1960s. So uh, you know, 63 years old, and um, it's uh, one of the kind of high-level programming languages that's still used. Um, Did you have much experience with uh, Fortran at all? And do you think uh, Lisp is still relevant today? Uh, Yeah, so um, there were lots of... uh, Lisp is one of those things that had lots of ideas. And 
a lot of them already got stolen by other programming languages uh, over the years. So it doesn't seem so exciting maybe uh, these days. But there were things like, uh, you know, garbage collection first happened in uh, Lisp and is used in almost any programming language these days. Yeah, uh, in terms of like things that are really relevant these days, yeah, I mean, it has really interesting things in terms of like exception handling and stuff uh, that that's, uh, you still can't get in modern languages. And um, because it had this idea that like uh, computer code and data are the same thing, uh, that's like really uh, helpful for like web development and stuff, you know, w- with things like uh, people are probably familiar with like React and JavaScript. So there's cool things you can do with uh, basically writing uh, HTML using Lisp. And uh, because HTML is sort of structured kind of like a programming language, you can uh, you can do like r- super efficient like uh, uh, stuff with uh, building web pages and stuff, and people use it for that sort of thing. It's uh, interesting because I, I saw that, you know, they were, they were appealing for some old Fortran programmers um, recently uh, to work on, you know, infrastructure and and stuff that has a lot of the old code is is any of the old code still used and uh do you have any people that kind of come in and recover lisp code and get it going again uh yeah well there's still some pretty big companies that use lisp uh, i think um most of the stuff in uh, google that um when you like look up uh like uh, a- airplane uh flights and stuff that was all uh came from a company i think it was was an ita software that they bought uh but that was all written in lisp and it still is uh all written in lisp from what i understand so they actually have a a lisp programming team inside google to do like flight reservation stuff then there's also uh there's a popular uh note editing tool called uh, rome which people use for kind of keeping track of like all their personal notes and that's all written in lisp uh those are kind of some of the projects uh that come to mind now, obviously, the uh, Lisp was originally developed by this guy, John McCarthy, uh, in the, oh, I don't even know, I think it was the late 50s. So it's like crazy, crazy early. And uh, uh, so there's lots of uh, sort of old, very old Lisp code that people always keep discovering, code, code on old uh, tapes and stuff uh, and talk about it online. But uh, yeah, I, I guess... Um, People always thought that Lisp would be like the solution to the AI revolution. And uh, uh, so in the 70s, people went really crazy about coming up with AI systems using symbolic reasoning. And Lisp was Mm. kind of the tool of choice. But of course, that was like a complete failure. And uh, then we had this thing called the AI winter. Uh, And of course, uh, we no longer have an AI winter in uh, 2023, that's for sure. (laughs) Well, I know you wrote a, a popular book called um, Land of Lisp. So how, how does that kind of connect back to, you know, what you were working on, you know, in terms of games as well? I mean, did, did your uh, your development of, you know, games like Flipper have any influence on you developing into, you know, writing this book? And how does it kind of connect back to that? Yeah, so I uh, I was always a big fan of the, the book uh, 101 Computer Games, which uh, they had in our German uh, uh, library where I uh, was a kid and had my TNN 948. So I programmed like probably all of the 101 games from the book into my, I typed them all into my TN9 for a And uh, uh, so I just love this idea of uh, like simple games. And I mean, that's obviously what's appealing about retro gaming is the idea that these old consoles ha- had a lot of constraints and sometimes mm. constraints produce creativity. 
um, they, they lead to more creativity and, uh, that meant, you know, the, there were lots of simple games on old systems like the TN994A and the Commodore 64. And those were, um, in a way, uh, could be more creative, uh, just because, um, you were forced to, uh, do as much as possible with so few resources. And, uh, yeah. And, and because games are, um, instantly understandable in terms of like what the point is of a game as opposed to some other application. Uh, it's a great teaching tool. And so I d thought, well, what if we made a, a list book where every single chapter in the book had a new game that you, you program from scratch. And so I had to figure out how to come up with like, uh, 12 different, um, games where each one of them, uh, introduced new programming concepts that, um, are uh, discussed in that chapter. So that was, it was a really hard sequencing uh, problem because I had to make sure, of course, that each game didn't use any features of like a future chapter. And I had to figure out how to make all the games interesting. And so that's how mm. Land of Lisp came about. Uh, so each chapter is a game and uh, uh, you learn new uh, Lisp programming concepts uh, in each chapter. And then at the, at the end, you have, uh, the last game is a very a more sophisticated game. Did you have much experience of uh, any of the dialects of Lisp? So a uh, game-oriented um, assembly Lisp, which was uh, used by uh, Andy Gavin and Naughty Dog. Yeah, so I know they were out there, and it was a, a logical thing to do. To, to If you're going to um, create some kind of scripting language for your game, you uh, a Lisp is a good choice because one of the tasks that you have to do with a programming language is, is you have to parse the text um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that people always complain about with Lisp is that you, there are too many parentheses, um, but that made it so that the parser, the, par the parsing process, turning the, the raw text into some sort of organized structure, the raw text of the, of a computer program, that made it, it, it's very easy in Lisp to do that process, the, the parsing process. And so, um, it's a good choice if you're, if you need a scripting language inside of a video game to use a Lisp. And so, yeah, as you were saying, uh, Naughty Dog uh, had their own Lisp dialect. Now, I've never used any of these, um, but uh, uh, several games have uh, Lisp dialects uh, for scripting purposes, uh, and it's a good uh, yeah, choice Yeah, I that. think it was uh, Crash Bandicoot and uh, Jack and Daxter as well. Um, but uh, Sony basically said to them, you know, uh, you have to change <laughs> once, once they joined up with Sony. Yeah. So I've heard over the years that Lisp is um, supposed to be a good introductory language for people that want to learn programming. For example, you know, when I was a kid, I would do what, what many kids did back then. You know, I'd open the, the manual for my Commodore computer and type in the listings in BASIC. And I tried to learn C when I was a teenager pretty unsuccessfully. And I imagine that a lot of our listeners will probably be in the same boat. They maybe experimented with programming back in the 80s or 90s, didn't really pick it up, but maybe have always kind of regretted not doing that. I mean, do you think today... Is Lisp a good, accessible, and fun language for people that may want to, you know, kind of take those first steps into programming? Uh, well, I certainly think it's it's very fun, and uh, uh, I would look at the uh, Closure programming language, spelled uh, C L O J U R E, which is like the the uh, most popular Lisp dialect right now, um, and it's uh, very uh, easy to to use. It's very modern. And uh, you can use any Java libraries you want. So even though Java programming is absolutely no fun, uh, you can just use all their libraries and uh, 
use them in your Lisp code. And uh, there's a huge community uh, around Clojure, and people are super friendly, and also some some very good books uh, 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 on the Clojure language. So that would definitely be uh, if you if you're interested in Lisp and you kind of want to uh, work with a programming language that's a little more mind bending. Uh, that's the one to look at. Uh, I should also point out that a big uh, proponent of Lisp is uh, Paul Graham, uh, who people might know as sort of a venture capitalist in uh, Silicon Valley. And uh, he uh, also maintains the Hacker News website, which is entirely programmed in Lisp. And uh, yeah, so uh, those are some. Uh, so I would definitely look at Closure and uh, I would look at Paul Graham's essays. He's written a lot of essays about the Lisp language, and he actually wrote a couple of books as well on Lisp. Can you tell us about the Lisperati 1000 project then? That sounds interesting. Oh, yeah. So uh, uh, I, for fun, I 3D printed a uh, small uh, uh, cyberdeck. So there's like a cyberdeck community on Reddit. Uh, a cyberdeck is basically a uh, computer um, where the screen and um, keyboard are uh, sort of packaged together into sort of a brick. Uh, I mean, there's lots of different cyberdecks, but that's kind of the standard format. And so there's this company in China that um, makes uh, screens for uh, rear view mirrors in cars. And um, what's nice about it is it's, is, is it's a, this long horizontal screen. So you can just uh, stick like a 40% mechanical keyboard underneath it. And, uh, and then you kind of have this, this device that's kind of uh, like a large book that has a mm. keyboard, a screen, and uh, then you can just uh, stick a Raspberry Pi in it. And uh, then, then you've got kind of a, a strange portable computer that's kind of uh, retro futuristic looking. So I, I 3D printed uh, my own design of this uh, and put it online and, and people were excited about it. So I uh, attempted to uh, turn, it, turn it into a uh, kind of a hobby project. And uh, it's, it's still not totally defunct. I still want to uh, release it at some point. Um, I have uh, a closet full of uh, parts for uh, the first batch of these. But yeah, so it's basically an aluminum milled uh, computer with a uh, sort of a, a long horizontal screen and a, a keyboard that's kind of brick shaped uh, or book shaped. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the idea is basically to have kind of a, a note taking device that is um, sort of uh, not as uh, obtrusive as a full laptop. So and that has a nice mechanical keyboard. Yeah, but yeah, it's it reminds a, me a bit of um, you know, like the old Amstrad PCW kind of portable word processors from the early nineties. That kind of, you know, that that kind of vibe to them. I think you know, it's, it's something that's dedicated to a singular task, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, that's that was exactly the idea is to kind of uh, borrow some of the ideas from those old uh, TRS and uh, Amstrad uh, portable devices. Mm. Um, the uh, the the trick, of course, is is that. Uh, it involves a uh, hardware and hardware as everybody will tell you that works with hardware is just hard and uh, yeah. <laughs> uh software i'm a software guy so uh i was kind of in over my head on the project um but i uh i'm i still have hopes of uh, uh getting it completed i do have all the parts uh so i may release it as a kit at some point um and uh people can put it together themselves because it's really the the uh uh the soldering work involved in uh putting the thing together uh is is uh quite difficult and uh it's it's something uh that is hard to do reliably and to kind of find uh people here uh, 
near where I live that can uh, do the uh, the manufacturing of the device. Uh, well, tell us about the, the play date system as well, because I mean, this is, well, I think we covered this on the podcast a couple of years ago. Um, this is basically a monochrome, almost like a Game Boy lookalike device, a small handheld console. Uh, for those that are not familiar with the, the play date, tell us a bit about it then and kind of what, what you're doing on that system at the moment. Yeah, so I just always love gadgets and uh, I just bought one of these things on a lark, or I, I should say I pre-ordered it and then I had to wait like a year until my pre-order got filled. But it's uh, it's just, um, it's like the most minimalistic uh, modern game device you can imagine. It's a, uh, it, yeah, it's just like a little little mini Game Boy looking thing and it has a, a very crisp uh, screen, but it's just a monochrome and uh, it has low resolution. And then the one, uh, and then it has like a regular uh, joypad and buttons. But then the one unique thing it has is, is it has a crank on the side. And you have uh, you can uh, get absolute and relative positioning of the crank and use that as an extra element in your game. So I just bought one of these for fun. And, and I just, I really loved the, uh, the design. Uh, and because uh, this is produced by kind of a smaller company, they're super friendly for indie developers. So... Uh, if you're somebody who who wants to develop, who likes doing like retro games and stuff, I would really recommend looking at this because you can uh, create you know a relatively simple game, and you can uh, you know uh, they have a uh, app store where you can sell it, and um, it's a uh, great for like a little bite sized development project. And uh, I thought it would be fun just uh, to try to do something uh, uh, that it can be that I can complete in a few months and uh, actually ship a product because that's always the thing every software developer struggles with on their personal projects mm-hmm. is we all have these epic ideas and we do work on these projects that never uh, see the light of day. So uh, I'm trying very hard not to let that happen. And then w- the, this additional thing is, because I'm like a, a, a computer language freak, there's this other new language that I really like called Zig, which is uh, kind of designed as a C replacement language. Um, right. Uh, and some crazy person uh, to figured out the uh, Zig bindings for the Playdate. So uh, you can actually write Zig code and uh, use it to make a, a video game on the, uh, the uh, Playdate. So, uh, so that, that's how I ended up working on my game because uh, I just love Zig programming. Uh, so it's a, a totally different language than Lisp because it's very low level, you know, very close to sort of assembly language. But it's uh, hmm. it's very uh, it's the design of it is very elegant. The, the person uh, uh, Andrew Kelly who designed it is just uh, very has very good taste. So it's uh, it's a pleasure to uh, program with. It sounds a fun challenge as well. Yeah, yeah, using a new programming language, you're still kind of getting your head around for a, a, a new platform as well. I mean, is that what kind of attracted you to this? Because obviously, some people might be, why make a game for a you know monochrome handheld as opposed to making something like the Switch? Is it those kind of limitations that you mentioned before and that exploration of a of a new platform that attracted you to it? Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's it's very limited, uh, and of course, part of being limited is that you can um, usually it means that you're you could release things faster because you know there's <laughs> there's just so much you can do. Uh, so so I was hoping that this if I try to do a switch game or something, uh, you know who knows if I'll ever get it done because I I'm sort of at a point in my life where you know I worked for uh, uh, 15 years in the medical software industry and that's how I made my living and uh, now uh, I don't have that kind of pressure where you know if I don't finish my game 
like I'm not going to be able to pay my rent or anything. I don't have that problem anymore. So, uh, so I really, uh, if I work on something, it has to be something that can be completed in a reasonable amount of time without me working, uh, you know, uh, uh, 15 hour days or whatever. So, um, uh, so that, that, that's part of the appeal. And then the, you know, this, the, I started thinking about the crank. And so what I'm doing is I'm building this game where you are a, uh, sort of an alien. For some reason, I always get back to aliens because I, I, you know, I did the, uh, I created the mascot for the Lisp language, which is a, uh, an alien character and then flip out had aliens. And now my yeah. new, my new game also has crazy looking aliens, but, uh, yeah. So the, the aliens, they basically have all these body parts, you know, arms, legs, eyes, uh, and other things. And then when you use the crank, it, uh, it flips around where the uh, body parts are on their body. So you can like put a, uh, a foot on your head and then if, uh, uh, and the, the feet are sticky. So you can, if you jump up and you have a foot on your head, you can attach yourself to the ceiling by your foot. And then, uh, it, it allows for interesting game mechanics like that. So that's, uh, how the game is going to work. <laughs> um, that sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm super happy with it. And, and, and in fact, I, I'm already breaking my rule because I, I got like super into the, uh, into like polygon, uh, geometry math and stuff to do the, uh, the animation for, for the player character in the game. And so it's like become a more ambitious title now. And, uh, if I, if it ever makes it out for the play date, I might, might actually consider, uh, trying to do a switch version in the future. The play date seems like a, a really interesting console. It's, um, it looks a bit deceptive to me, you know, it looks like it's, uh, something that's a bit old school, but actually you've got stuff like, you know, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth in there as well. Uh, quite a bit of RAM, um, the battery life lasts long. What What are people's reactions like when you get one out and you say, I'm kind of developing a title for this? Yeah, well, the, the hardware is, is beautiful. It was developed by that company, what is it called, Teenage uh, Electronics or whatever, that Swedish company that does all the awesome uh, hardware devices. So, uh, it, it looks beautiful and, and yeah, and people get excited when they see it and they, uh, it's one of those things where people can't help themselves. They start playing with it. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's really a great device. And what's nice about it is, uh, that it has this indie vibe around it, kind of like, you know, the retro community. And so, um, there's lots of quirky titles that people have re- released for it. And, uh, um, so it, uh, and they're all kind of bite-sized titles. So it's a, it's a great device. You can kind of keep it in your pocket. And then, you know, when you're waiting at the bus station or something, you, you can play something for a few minutes. Uh, uh, it's really a great device in, in that regard. Um, now it is, a, it is a little bit pricey. I think it, right. What is it going for right now? I think maybe $199 here in the U S uh, so for a, uh, for a pretty basic, uh, device like that, you know, you're kind of paying a premium for the, uh, the, the design and for the, the, uh, the, uh, community that's, that that uh you know has built around it and the and the libraries that they've built so but uh yeah it's a really fun little device and it definitely sounds like you've got your passion for game making back again using the play date exactly and i just i yeah. just have to ship that's always the the, yeah. the, the <laughs> problem so i've i i have i spent like months just working on the character design for the player character and that now i'm working on like the level and the movement and i still don't have a full game and uh um and of course every time you uh you know i work on another part of the game it's like oh i have these crazy ideas for how i could do something innovative and i have to stop myself at some point i just i have to 
that, yeah, at some point I have to keep things simple to, to, to get it out the door and not just always uh, create new problems for myself. I know that obviously Flipout has still got, you know, a lot of love in the the Jaguar community and, you know, a lot of retro gamers in general love that game. I mean, would that be anything you'd ever consider kind of revisiting, maybe a Flipout 2 for the the play date or an updated version of it? That would be fun. I don't think I own the rights for it. I have no idea who does own the rights. Mm. I think it might be Guerrilla Systems, and I'm still in touch with those guys, so I could ask them if if there was, uh, if I could get licensing for it or whatever or or I don't know how that works. Maybe the licensing has expired. <laughs> I guess it wouldn't expire because it would be a uh, copyright. Um, so uh, yeah, that would be ca- kind of fun. I mean, of course, you know, outside of like the retro community, I mean, it that it, it's a pretty deep cut in terms of like it's pretty obscure. <laughs> mm, so, yeah. would you make any any changes you can think of that you'd make to it if you if you were to do it again? Well, it's it's tricky because like um, uh, we were. You know, the limiting factor was that, um, you know, the, the the crazy thing with the Jaguar was you had these four processors and you had to write assembly language in f- four different dialects, basically, and all of them shared the, the a common uh, RAM bus. And so what would happen is you would write a piece of code for one of the chips and it would work well. And then you'd write the code for the next chip. The first chip wouldn't work anymore because um, the second chip was using more RAM uh, calls. And, and it would, you know, it would basically, so the first chip would be li- uh, limited by how much data it could get from the, the main RAM. And so uh, uh, it was a, just a real struggle to, to work on. I mean, everybody who worked on the Jaguar will tell you that. So, so our limiting factor was just getting, you know, anything to, to work at all. And uh, uh, so uh, we, you know, the, the, we were sort of limited in terms of how much thought we could put into the, uh, you know, the, the game uh the the you know as I said like the number of levels and, and enemies and stuff but uh, but I think yeah I actually think the DOS version is is a pretty good vision of how I would have liked the Jaguar version to be <laughs> fantastic well Conrad it's been incredible hearing some of your memories about you know those uh those days developing back in the nineties and also you know incredible like I said that you've you've got that passion still burning strong for indie game development now as well so we'll have to keep in touch and you'll have to let, let us know when the the title comes out for the play date. And if you manage to do that switch port, then we'll obviously give it a mention on the podcast. Yeah, that would be awesome. Uh, I, I will let you know. And it was really fun talking with you guys. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I really love the uh, retro community. And, uh, and uh, it, you know, it is, it is obviously this real strange thing where people like us are, you know, we have this affection for these old games. And, um, mm. you know, what, what was it about the old games that uh, made them, so much more interesting than the new ones and all that really good question and uh yeah i uh love listening to you guys and uh maybe at some point we'll get to talk again fantastic it's been a pleasure to talk to you conrad thanks so much for coming on all right bye-bye